Ready? Yep. No. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Troublesome Turbs, the podcast that keeps interpreters up at night, even in the year of the Lord 2021. It seems we've finally made year. it through 2020. Happy, Happy New year. year, everyone. Happy this New is the year. first episode. We're all still here, still alive. It is January 7th, and the world has almost ended already, so we're off to a good start. Once again. Um, once again, but still with us, you already heard him, is the muscle from Brussels, Alex Drexel. Alex, how are you doing? <laughs> God, I'm not feeling very muscular at all right now, but it's uh, lovely to uh, talk to you both. So uh, let's dive right in. <laughs> that seems pretty good. And you've already heard the other one as well, the hot Scott, Jonathan Downey. Jonathan, <laughs> how you doing? Where did that come from? Uh, do you know that is the first time that anyone has ever called me that? And I'm not sure whether to laugh or cry. I just but anyway, what right it, with Scott? So, so to, to give you a bit of context on this episode, once a year, the Troublesome Terps meet before an episode to plan the delights and the wonderful <laughs> things that we are going to bring so you many over the next giving year. giving the game away. <laughs> and so already... That's okay. We're popping the hood. <laughs> be, be, before this recording has even started, we had already been chatting and planning and we have some... Amazing gems coming for you next year. Stay tuned. Don't touch this that year, dial. Th this year. Oh, boy. Like in 2021. Th in, in 2021. <laughs> like and subscribe. Uh, like, like and subscribe. Don't touch that dial. Ad coming after the break. <laughs> no, but, Link so, in bio. <laughs> oh, already before we even started recording this, we've been chatting and winding oh. each other up. So if this episode sounds a little bit more jolly than usual, it's not that any of us have been touching the um, the illicit fluids. It's just that we've been chatting already and we've wound each other up already. So... My glass is completely empty, but Mine is you, you can't What's see that on, because thankfully this is an audio only <laughs> podcast. I have water. <laughs> anyway, Russian we wanted water. to give a quick shout out to Sarah, who can't be with us tonight yes. because of, of mum duties and, and family stuff. So um, happy new year to you, Sarah. And we hope happy to uh, have you back uh, very, very soon. It was lovely to have you on for the year in review episode, which was a ton of fun. Oh, that was great fun. Yeah, that was great yes. fun. Indeed. So we, we hope you're all off to a, a relatively good start of the year, as good as it can be, I guess, given the circumstances and everything. But let's not dwell on that. We have um, a quick piece of news that I wanted to get out. Um, you now have the possibility, and you may have seen it already on the website, actually, um, to give us some money because um, we would actually like to have proper transcripts done for each and every episode, which is great for us to be able to go back to earlier episodes. Great for you to be able to go back to episodes. Accessibility. Um, and, and it's great for accessibility, of course. And it might be interesting uh, to people doing research. Um, I hear there's such a thing. There are people who do research, apparently. I don't know why, but um, they do. And they might find the transcripts helpful. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, there has never been a research paper on an interpreting podcast. See, there's that's a challenge a for anyone for watching this. You know, if, you, if you're doing a master's degree and you're desperate for a dissertation topic. Hit us up. Yeah. The, the <laughs> world of interpreting podcasts. I, I, I could give you some, some interpreting podcast topics. Yes, he, he has uh, some troublesome topics up his sleeve. Yeah. So just to finish this off, you'll, um, you'll find as of now, uh, in every episode, there's a link that just says support the Troublesome Terps. And that's what you can do. Just click on that and um, give us a little bit of money if you can. And that would be much appreciated to be able to uh, make all those lovely transcripts. 
that's it. Uh, and with that, we'll dive into today's topic, which is a topic that we have covered before uh, in episode 37, to be exact, with uh, Dr. Karin Reithofer from uh, Vienna back in the day. And we've decided to uh, that we wanted to revisit the topic. It's um, about English, of course. The bully, the behemoth, um, the lingua franca, that's the angle we had back then. And we thought uh, it might be interesting to, to get back to that um, topic um, because... I think I've said on the podcast before that I'm not so worried about remote uh, and machine interpreting. I'm more worried about English when it comes to the future of interpreting. So I don't know if any of you share that. Worried about the I don't elf know if it's on a the shelf? Fear. Yeah, the elf on the shelf, exactly. English as a lingua I'm, franca, ELF. I was getting concerned about that because I talked to a lot of people who were like, oh, just do everything in English. And then 2019, I went to international conflicts back in the day when you could go to a conference. Which, yeah, what was that like? Back in them days. Tell me about that. It's, it's like you had thousands of people in the same room and no one was wearing a mask. It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but they had a session on diversity in the events industry. And I toddled along to it, and it was one of these open panel sessions. And so I slidoed the question what about linguistic diversity? Because they talked about gender diversity and age diversity and racial diversity and all these different types of diversities, but I realized mm -hmm. they hadn't talked about linguistic diversity. And I asked them the question and a director from an events management software company said that looking from their slate of events that were booked up for the next, I think it was four or five years, he said, English-only events were beginning, were reducing and that companies were increasingly wanting to do stuff in local languages or in many different languages. And I thought that's interesting because every interpreter I knew at the time was worried about English as a lingua franca, yet here's someone with his hand on the stats saying that trend is reversing. I haven't seen a huge amount of evidence for that yet. I think COVID might have changed some thinking. And I don't think necessarily that events not being in English only anymore is a huge boon to interpreters. There are many ways of doing multilingual events that don't involve us. Um, but I think certainly our fears of English as a lingua franca may have been not as prescient as we thought they were. Mm. Well, I can tell you why I was a little bit worried, especially in the context of uh, the COVID pandemic, was that I figured interpreters... Some interpreters in some contexts, I suppose I'm going to qualify it, had a bit of a hard time adapting to the new situation. And a lot of especially sort of standing committees and, and sort of organizations that meet all the time with interpreting, they couldn't just interrupt their work. I mean, they could just hop on a Zoom call and would maybe decide to just do it in English, quote unquote. And that's why I was a little bit worried. But on the other hand, I think Sarah said that last time around is that the fact that we have these platforms now, of course, means that it's now easier to just add interpreting onto uh, an online meeting. So that, that might mean that it balances the whole thing out or I don't know. So maybe it's not that bad after all. That's, that's entirely possible. I think also the whole discussion of social justice, racial justice, um, the whole discussion of diversity has meant that people are becoming more aware of the innate colonialism of English only. Man, I sounded like an academic there. But this idea of we'll just do it it's in true, English, though. everyone speaks English. Yes. People are becoming more aware that that in itself is not an example of racism, but it is an example of privileging a certain group of people. 
And so there are people who speak English. Yeah. Or or people who are comfortable in English more to the point as well. And so now people are saying, you know, if we're going to get serious about diversity, that has to go across the board. And I wonder, I don't think companies are necessarily all on that yet, but I could see that becoming more of a thing as people say, well, hold on, what ideas are we missing if we're making Italian engineers speak English or if we're making, I don't know, manufacturers from Colombia try to model through in English? What are we missing? Um, And that's an argument that I'm hearing people in the events industry begin to make before we did. We're actually quite slow in making that argument. I was just just wanted to, uh, to point people towards a new paper from Karin, who we had on for the for the first Elf on the Shelf episode. Um, she has a paper on intelligibility in English as a lingua franca uh, from an interpreter's point of view, and I think I'm probably going to make a complete hash of this, but I think um, she found out um, with an experiment that people who are used to these Elf contexts, so people getting by with just English basically, um, that those people actually can benefit from the situation, but people who are sort of experts in their field do not necessarily benefit from that constellation, so which would be a, a, a point in favor of interpreting, if I understood correctly. But yeah, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. Yeah, for sure. But I also think like a lot of, for a lot of um, experts in their fields, I think presenting in English has some sort of you know, if you're invited to an international conference, you might be actually be, be, be flying there. Well, you know, back in the days when you flew. Um, but, you know, it, there was always a certain air of prestige to, to presenting your stuff in English, whether or not you were super comfortable with it or whether or not the audience was actually missing some of the ideas was kind of besides the point. It was more about, you know, that, that sort of air of internationalism. And so I, I'm not sure. I mean, yes, obviously people were missing some ideas or not all the ideas were getting brought were getting were being brought across sorry um if somebody had to speak english but i think there was always something kind of alluring to doing an, an international presentation in front of an international audience in another country and then you have to speak english and you're like okay this is this is important i'm important the have to is interesting though because there's often a fair amount of pressure involved yeah yeah, yeah for sure of course everybody's fine with english right and then yeah, i mean yeah, who's yeah. going to say no Right. That's actually that actually also goes to the flip side. I mean, especially in Germany, when interpretation is being offered at conferences and the the the, the spoken language is English, tons of people will not get the interpretation headsets because oh, everybody speaks English. And then afterwards, you know, in the coffee break, shame attached to it, right? Exactly, people yeah. are ashamed if they actually get the interpretation. And then uh, in the coffee break, you actually overhear people and they're like, oh yeah, I didn't get that. Like, what was the actual point? What what were they saying? So you know, it's a great often, oftentimes. Moment. <laughs> Yeah, but oftentimes you actually find out after the fact that, oh, yeah, not everybody spoke English, but then people are kind of afraid to admit it. So the the story that I often tell um, as often as I can is I was at a construction conference and there were two Italian delegations there, both in the same industry. The first lot decided we're going to do the prestige thing, we're going to speak in English. And have you ever seen people so bored with a presentation that literally like playing anything on their phone? Yes. was better than the presentation. So the first guys got that. And once they finished, you know, when they, they, the chair of, of the conference was like trying to get people to clap, they got like kind of three claps. And I think some cockroaches hissed quite silently in the distance. <laughs> Everybody had the phone in their hands. Uh. But then, so then you had the break. And then the next Italians obviously looked at what happened and thought, no, we're not going to do that. So they spoke in Italian. The Italian booth 
did an incredible job of taking a presentation that was both emotional and technical, mm-hmm. rendering it into some of the most beautiful English that I've heard, which then obviously we took really. Yeah. And the next lot not only got a massive kind of huge applause, but you couldn't get to their stand at the next break. Everyone was really wanted to talk to them whereas the poor guys awesome. who went first and spoke in English yeah. you you could have I mean you could have had a hundred people at their stand there was so much space and that basic you know that's the story that I tell people say you know if you're not speaking in the language where you can make an impact you're losing out big time and people begin to think differently when you when you when you go that way it's again I know I've said this before but if we talk in terms of value in terms in terms of the difference it makes with the person speaking you can begin to reverse the prestige thing because mm. you know it's one thing being prestigious it's another thing having to go and explain to your boss why you don't have any orders after you yeah. after your boss mm. has sent you you know a thousand miles for a conference and you've got to go home and say yeah i got no orders because no one had a clue what we do there's a different angle to the prestige thing just to to add that is also that starting at a certain diplomatic level or i don't know maybe even corporate level i'm, I'm not so sure is then the, the prestige is actually attached to using an interpreter is that you can you can afford it you can you know you can bring an interpreter and you right. can you have the prestige to be allowed quote unquote to speak whatever it is you speak and have that interpreted into into another language so that's interesting as well it's it's when you get addressed as mr so-and-so's or when an interpreter gets addressed as mr so-and-so's interpreter or mrs so-and-so's interpreter it makes me slightly uncomfortable, but then I realise that I'm still trying to remind myself that interpreting is sometimes booked for the look. And it's again why I'm not massively worried about English as a lingua franca, because I've been in meetings where the interpreting has been there because it looks pretty. And <laughs> yeah. it, make, it makes the conference look international. It's, um, what do you call it again? It's not ceremonial. Symbolic interpreting. Symbolic interpreting, yeah. That's very often what it is, actually. So, yeah. Because of course the principal will know they'll you know they'll be perfectly comfortable, but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> is, is, am I am I the only interpreter who's done a meeting and realised that none of the headsets have ever left the charging station? Oh no, my God! It happened to all of us <laughs> so many times. It is the worst. You, you spent like the first uh, session looking around from the booth, going, yeah. Okay, and then you go down and ask the technician, and they're like, "Yeah, one headset is missing, and so you have to interpret." And then it actually turns out the headset went missing two days ago. Yeah, it's just over at the buffet. Yeah, exactly. It's like somewhere at the buffet and you've been interpreting. For the, the thing for is, you can listen to the floor on the headset as well. You know, some people just listen to it because they can't hear it all that well or something like that. <laughs> anyway. but, but, the, but, the, but this is the thing is that we have to stop pretending that interpreting is always about linguistic needs. It's not. <laughs> oh, there's so much. Yeah, status and yeah, prestige, it, as we just it, said. It's about other stuff. And so mm-hmm. the English as a lingua franca debate... Part of it is, is interpreting deemed as important enough that it matters? Mm-hmm. And that's a question for our clients. It's also a question for us. The mm-hmm. other part of it is, do people realize that asking someone to speak in their second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth language isn't necessarily a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one thing I realized as well as I, I went back to the episode we did with Karin was that I think we spoke about the whole native speaker thing as well, which we don't have to go into too much detail on today. But the first of all, there is no English native speaker because there's no such thing as English. I mean, there's several Englishes, obviously. <laughs> I mean, just looking at the two big ones, the UK and the US, there's still plenty of space for misunderstanding and, you know, 
cultural specificities. And Jonathan is quietly chuckling, chuckling away there. <laughs> so that's maybe just an aside. Um, and since since we were um, no, actually before the before the episode during our planning session, we talked a, a little bit about Brexit, which is sort of a real thing now that the transition period is over, and there was lots mm. of discussion, sort of coming coming back up about um, whether English is going to stay a relevant language in language in the EU and in Brussels. Spoiler alert, yes, obviously. <laughs> so um, I don't know if we want to revisit that at all. But um, Jonathan, I think you've written a little bit about how Brexit is going to change the market and the demand and the supply side of interpreting it, in the UK. It's changed slightly. So I've been following some discussions from trade boards about this and... As far as I can see, UK interpreters with... So if you have an EU passport, none of this applies to you and you're incredibly blessed. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, if you have settled status in the UK, that is. <laughs> yeah, but if you just have a UK passport, it seems like theoretically you can interpret still in the EU. Some countries are putting in economic whatever. The big highlight is that as far as I can read from the UK releases on immigration, you cannot my, uh, immigrate to the UK for the purposes of setting up a small business, like being self-employed. That's not allowed anymore. So if you assume, and I think it's a fair assumption, that over half of interpreters in the UK are not UK-born, and I think that's a pretty fair assumption to make, mm. Yes, then definitely. you have a reduced supply coming. Because unless there's a, a miraculous staff increase in staff jobs, there are going to be fewer interpreters moving to the UK. Um, it's not hugely clear where UK interpreters can go to the EU. I didn't see a whole lot of stuff about whether EU interpreters can come to the UK. That's still, I haven't seen any final confirmation on that. The answer could be maybe. But even still, if you're going to have like an economic needs assessment or you're going to have some kind of paperwork to do. Sorry, Jonathan, what does that mean exactly? I've seen that prop up the, the economic needs thing. What What is that in a nutshell? I'm not entirely sure. It seems to mean something like, uh, is there someone available locally who can do it so that the money stays in the economy? Or is the job big enough that we'll let someone else take money out of our economy because they'll be putting more in? That seems to be what it says, but no one seems to have, you know, I'm, I I am not a lawyer kind of hashtag, um, but that seems hashtag. to be, but but that seems to be what they're meaning, but no one seems to release details on that. But say, for example, that the UK said the same rules as I think France aren't putting any things you can come to France to interpret, fine. Say the UK say you don't need any, there's not going to be an economic needs assessment, you can just come. You still have to make sure the person's got their up-to-date passport and stuff. And mm -hmm. it's still going to be a little bit more hassle than it would be now. And there's a, a disincentive to bring someone across. Mm. There's a huge disincentive for any interpreter to move from an EU country to the UK because they can't come and set up a business. From how I read the immigration regulations, I could be wrong, but that seems to be what it's saying because you need a, an offer of a job and so on. So you have a, you have a, you have a throttling of supply UK universities aren't doing the best. I don't think any university is doing the best at the moment. So you have a throttling of incoming supply. 
do you have a throttling of training where you might have a reduction in, in training numbers anyway for various reasons with the UK leaving Erasmus as well? Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So the UK is about to have, is heading for a supply side shock. The question is with assuming the events start coming back halfway towards the end of this year, if we assume that the UK wins as many international events as it used to, I believe uh, London was the biggest or second biggest conference city on the planet, depending mm. on which conferences you mean, yeah. then you have a supply side throttling and you have demand growing again. Anyone who knows basic economics knows that that means a likely price rise if those supplying realise that's a supply shock. It either means a price rise or it means a, a limit of availability. Or both. And it's going to be tough for uh, language students. I mean, not just interpreting students in the UK, but language students overall, you know, because going abroad is such a big part of learning languages, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, for every student, basically, but especially for... My year abroad language. wasn't an Erasmus year. And as I understand the existing bilateral agreements, which many, but not all universities already have, are unaffected. Yeah. So my year abroad was And the a UK has a follow-up program, haven't they? something the tour oh, is yes that, yeah. but there are issues with that that i would leave to the experts but experts of experts who were on the erasmus organizing stuff and have looked at tutoring have already seen issues with tutoring um because it's not it doesn't seem to be reciprocal it seems to be we'll send our students abroad and we want you to take them but we don't want to bring them mm, again mm. well they'll have to have bilateral agreements with each and every nation they want to do that with probably yes. yeah. which to be honest is if, I, I mean this is the other thing is that um let's assume that Turing somehow magically replaces erasmus that's not going to be a straightaway thing um, right. the question is and this is a question that no one can answer yet is how brexit will affect the uk standing as an international conference country mm -hmm. um and also with remote how relevant is that anyway so you know if the oh, big events point, start yeah. coming if the big events start coming back there is a question and i put this in what i wrote there is a question can the uk supply side shock be mitigated because you have remote so who really cares where the interpreters are hmm. yeah it's like a perfect storm almost or maybe not yeah maybe that sort of attenuates the whole problem but, but the whole thing is again know. is that that assumes the interpreters are equally happy to jump into remote it assumes that hybrid events will hire remote interpreters mm. and it assumes zero growth in in-person events or very little growth in in-person events post-covid i can see logical issues with any of those being correct yeah um assume in-person events come back i don't know towards the end of this year 2021 um you if you see any growth in in-person events at all i don't think any interpreter that i know well i mean a lot of interpreters are really busy i know a lot of interpreters who've had very little interpreting work at all yeah. but i've seen an uptick in in demand already you know how far does that de that demand grow i mean I, I had a consultant interpreting job recently where for one language i found it really difficult to get an interpreter that i was happy to put on a, a certain job. I'm a consultant interpreter. I know my way around. I know where to look. What does this mean for people who don't know where to look? Um, it, it, it's a big, it's an issue that no one really thought about. Um, there, is, there aren't any 
the only obvious mitigation strategy is remote. But if you start going to remote, then why should UK interpreters be the people picked? You know, interpreters in other countries are just as able to bid for remote jobs as anyone else is. Yeah. I mean, we should probably stop at this point because we have a, a whole episode in the works about this <laughs> we're going to go in, into more detail so stay tuned for that but um i'm curious to hear from you alex um since that's your language combination is english german german english and it, i always found it kind of paradoxical because everybody says if you want to work as a freelance interpreter on the german market you have to have english mm. then again uh, a lot of people in germany speak english quite well and might get along with it so so how do you see that work out yeah work there's i think it's it's kind of true what you're saying but then on the flip side a lot of people speak english well enough conversationally but then as soon as you actually you know send them off to a conference they start to struggle and i think also germans have a very there's like a whole bunch of shame attached to not being able to speak flawless English because the so idea is, true. oh, everybody speaks perfect yeah. English, everybody but me, so this mm -hmm. is going to be horrible. Which um, isn't true, but that's what everybody thinks. Exactly, totally. Yeah. And I have found that if you don't have at least an English C in Germany, you probably will or you probably have missed out on jobs. I think that is something that probably everybody has experienced at some point. Um, certainly me in my in my consulting career, I need a lot of English C's at least, um, which is interesting because we're in Germany and you would think that a lot of the times the, uh, the main conference language would be German, but it is oftentimes English, especially in the automotive industry, which I guess is just because it's a very international industry. And they're also, I mean, to be fair, a lot of those engineers actually speak like perfect English and they, they studied abroad. They said in the States, they studied in, you know, the UK or wherever have you, and they actually do speak perfect English. And oftentimes for them, for, you know, for these sorts of events, it's, it's quite interesting because yes, they present the cars. Yes. They do a lot of those technical, uh, you know, big blowout events, but oftentimes it's, it's about the personal connections between the engineers or the managers and the reporters because they've known each other for years. And so, yes, they want to know about the car and, you know, so how this is for press events and stuff like that, for example. Yeah, this is, this yeah. is for example, press events or not necessarily trade fairs, but, you know, big sales events. And um, for them, it's not necessarily just about the technical information. It's about, you know, I don't want to say schmoozing the journalists, but, you know. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's, it's It sort of is, because it's like, <laughs> hey, how is your wife? How have you been? How did you like that event? Oh, and I saw you went here and there. How have you, you know, like all that stuff, which is kind of, um, this isn't what we would interpret even. This happens, at, you know, over dinner or, you know, in the coffee breaks. And I think in those kinds of situations, the English is very important. And it's interesting to see that I think for those reasons, a lot of those events oftentimes are held in English, even in non-English speaking countries, because it just makes people more comfortable because it's easier to schmooze the people if you actually speak their language. And, and there's quite a few companies as well who run their operations in English, even in Germany. as universities offering more lectures in English yeah. as well for international students. So lots of things sort of changing, right, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I absolutely agree. Um, I think, you know, English is a lingua franca. I'm not too worried about it, period. But I do see that there is sort of, you know, 
people we talked we touched upon it with with Brexit and everything and there was a whole idea of of is English going to go away is it going to become less important internationally I don't think so I mean you know there's there's statistics saying oh English is the language of the internet and that used to be the case and I digged up I dug up some statistics here where it said that the the the, the level of English language content actually dropped down to like about 40% in the mid 2000s which was shocking to me when I found that out but um but it is definitely here to stay like there is no way of of kind of getting rid of english i mean i, I guess it wouldn't be unprecedented because at one point in time french was kind of the the, the lingua franca of the of the world yeah and, the language and that kind of was replaced yeah. so German you know used to be the language of science yeah well <laughs> time you know, ago. there you go so i guess it's not unprecedented and it could be replaced at some point but that won't happen because of brexit that's not going to happen because of you know an overnight process I think also with, with English, we need to not detach a language to a country. Yes. And this is the mistake that's being made in a lot of places is the UK is doing this, America is looking like this, therefore English changes. Well, there are now, you know, there are way more speakers of English in India than there are in the UK, J just as a thing. I think if... If English loses its prestige as a lingua franca or its place, and I could see ways that it would, I wonder if because of the rise of automated speech translation, the rise of machine translation, that we could see a world with multiple languages rather than a single lingua franca, because a single lingua franca makes sense when translation and interpreting are energetically and economically expensive. So when it costs thousands of pounds to get interpreters in and it's a pain in the bum to find a translator, a lingua franca makes sense. When you can grab your phone and have a basic conversation using Google Translate, the position of a lingua franca isn't as important. I'm not saying that they're going to replace us. I'll be discussing that in an upcoming presentation. But, um, <laughs> but the very fact that something that looks like translation and interpreting is no longer expensive in time or money or opportunity cost makes me wonder whether the days of a global or even sectoral lingua franca are kind of numbered because why do you need one yeah i also get the impression for example in the us that spanish is just growing so massively because of the demographics and also because it seems to me that it also has a certain I don't know, pop cultural appeal. Like, I don't know if that's the right way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, but I was just going to say something but similar. It's yeah. definitely big. But then to that point, I also think English is definitely not going to go away anytime soon or going to go anywhere just because of, you know, stuff like Hollywood or Netflix or all of those movies and shows that are being produced on a global scale. Most of those are going to be produced in, in English because they're going to be produced in either the UK or in Georgia or in California or somewhere. And that isn't gonna gonna just disappear overnight and that content is gonna stay in English. And yes, there are now quotas in place where, for example, Netflix has to produce a certain amount of shows in the individual countries, in the country's language, which is great, which is fantastic. If you want to have an Italian show there on Netflix, if you want to have a French show there on Netflix, um, Netflix should be paying me to say all this stuff. Uh, but, um, you, you know, I think, sponsor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I think, yeah, pop cultural relevance is is huge, not just with, with Spanish, like you were just saying, but also with English, and that's not going to go anywhere. Like, But I think even a lot of international productions... Uh, even if they're not based in the UK or the US, are probably done in English these days as well. Mm. Maybe yeah, not in France, maybe easier. not in Germany, but internationally, because the production team will be from all over the place. There will be, you know, stars from 
various countries. And of course, the first choice will be English. I think also what Netflix has done, I mean, the, the quota system, I don't know if that was forced on them or where they chose it. It was. But, but, but streaming services have yeah. really um, democratised... I mean, why am I using so many academic words? Can someone send me an academic? <laughs> it's twenty twenty one. Get it out of your system. But the, to, no, but but streaming services have made it less prohibitively expensive to create a film and to get people to see it. And I think we haven't really understood the impact of a lot of the technological change. And I can see because of the quota system that Netflix have got, you're now seeing more and more shows, you know, in Swedish or French or German that British people are watching. Hmm. And that, mm. or Danish, or Danish, Organ and that, <laughs> but but that is going to have an effect. You know, we're seeing. You know, and I know how literary translators clamour about. You know, what is it? Four percent of books in English are translated, and Anthony, Anthony Pym's pointed out that four percent of a huge market is actually more books than fifty percent of a tiny one, which is yeah. Percentages are usually a rubbish statistic um, <laughs> because you they don't it, tell yeah. you. But the 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 point I'm making is that with more technology being available to broadcast in many languages and then going back to our Elena episode on interlingual respeaking, it's becoming technologically more straightforward to make that content that was produced in Italian, Bulgarian, Polish, Danish available in whatever other language you want. We're we're see, we are gonna we are beginning to see pop cultural changes, and I've seen like multilingual memes put online by people who I know are definitely not multilingual. Um, <laughs> you know, just think about the whole Doge me. You know, oh, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> yeah we're, for we're, sure. We're memeing. We're we're doing multicultural memeing. There's multicultural and streaming services. Things are shifting, and I think, and I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to get a lot of people right to complain, but I think it's actually a good thing that interpreting and translation are more accessible than ever because it's creating a world where interpreting and translation are more needed and are more experienced. And because the shine and the prestige, you know, the interpreting is no longer seen as by many people, it's no longer seen as this thing that you only see at the UN. It's, oh, look, I've got this program that's interlingually, whatever, is available in, in my language too. Translation is, is the same, you know, translation is in my pocket, interpreting is in my pocket. Because of that, there's now a bigger market than there ever was before if we take advantage of it. And I think the whole English, English as a lingua franca debate is very closely linked to what is interpreting for and who is it for? And because of the whole intercultural stuff and, you know, what we're talking about, you know, where are, where's the culture being created, we could see in the medium to long term that the whole English as a, as a lingua franca thing dissolves at the same speed as translation and interpreting become more accessible to everyone, which yeah. means that people become more ready to pay for it. Which is not the way that we thought the interpreting would grow because, <laughs> you know, when I, when I trained some 12, 13 years ago, it was a prestige factor. And, you know, here's the things you need in your contract. Here's the conditions. Um, hmm. Interpreting grows by there being more rich companies and more international trade. But what if interpreting grows because people watch Borg and, and Finnish and go, that's pretty cool that I can experience something from a different language. I wonder if. And mm -hmm. suddenly... They want an interpreter because they've suddenly realized that, oh, this is a cool thing. 
And they realized it's a possibility for them. It's not yeah. just something that the UN or the Un European Union can avail yeah. themselves of. I, I will be <laughs> talking about that in an upcoming presentation, a, a wonderful summit that some wonderful people have put on. But we need to rethink how we provide and make interpreting available because we're going to start providing interpreting for the people who, who are used to Netflix and are used to language at the touch of a button. Yeah. We don't necessarily want to be language at the touch of a button, but we need to realize that they don't want to us to spend three days doing things and then come back to them. They, they're wanting a different way of delivering interpreting than we're used to giving them it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think it's, that's it's an interesting, yeah. I think it's super interesting in that context as well to talk to people who are not interpreters, but who certainly have very informed opinions about multilingualism and interpreting and so on. And uh, just as a little plug, I had a very interesting online discussion the other day, a couple of weeks ago, actually, with uh, Dave Keating, who's a, he's from the US. He's a journalist who's um, uh, based in Brussels. He's lived in Italy before, I think, and he's definitely very cosmopolitan. And we talked about um, the future of English sort of as it pertains to the EU bubble, if you will, and, and journalism in Brussels and so on. That was super interesting because um, we tried to set it up as a bit of a sort of pro-contra thing. So I was, of course, in favor of interpreting and multilingualism, and he would sort of argue the, the, the other side. But we actually, we very quickly found a middle ground where we said that, you know, of course, interpreting makes sense for certain situations, but let's not fool ourselves. English is just huge um and we talked about interesting things like you know going back to the whole culture theme for example we talked about eurovision he's a big fan of the eurovision song contest and and there's who isn't yeah well <laughs> let's not get into that <laughs> i can't enjoy it but i'm i'm definitely not as huge a fan as as davis and actually there are a lot of interpreters who are big fans of the esc so that's true um but we talked about how language in the eurovision song contest developed because of course um in the early days um every country would sing in their own language. Mm. And that has changed. I mean, almost 100%. Uh, I think he had some statistics. So if you're interested in that, go back and, and actually, in any case, go back and watch the video. It's really interesting, I think. Um, so most of the stuff now, most of the songs are in English these days, uh, which is really interesting. But everybody knows what douze point means. Even yeah, if you right. don't speak a word of French, it's everybody the, knows what douze point. The, the token French phrase. Yes, the token that French That gets thrown phrase. around, yeah. In the UK, everyone knows what nil point is because that's what the UK usually gets. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, the same. Nice, nice. Ah, yeah. Ah. <laughs> but yeah, culture is definitely a huge a huge factor in that. So uh, definitely something to uh, to keep an eye on. And um, Alex, you have some, some figures here as well for us. Um, I do. I looked up some stuff. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, I don't know. I just figured, you know, I would come semi-prepared. Oh, this is... So this, there's like... Oh, a, English I mean, on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I already talked a little bit about the, the, the English on the internet and how that reduced from like some 90, 80, 90% um, of all the content online was in English. So we already covered that. And there's also a business angle on on English because a 2014 survey, so not necessarily the freshest survey out there, but, you know, it's what I've what I found, um, found that nearly 60% of respondents either spend more time on sites in their own language than they do in English or boycott English language URLs altogether. And the same goes for, mm. you know, spending money on websites that are not in their language. Some people don't actually visit non non their language sites if that makes any sense yeah, yeah. Advisory, so of course if yeah. you <laughs> yeah so if you want to you know um, make business 
you need to have multilingualism because some people will simply not go for English. And this is just a very basic consumer decision. This is for online shops or whatever. But even if you're going for for international business, you know, at, at conferences or at trade fairs, um, what is that sentence? There's a phrase. It's it's old and cheesy, but it's is like that, if is you that speak the English. Brand? No, it's like if you speak a language, people understand. You speak to their brain. If you speak their language, you speak to their heart, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So the the Willy Brandt quote, which is kind of overused in interpreting about if I'm selling to you, I need to speak English. If you're spelling speak, speaking to me, then müssen Sie Deutsch sprechen. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. We'll, we'll put uh, those quotes into the into the show notes. But yeah, yeah it, sure. it, I mean, you can kind of like uh, dub over my bad pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll interpret it for sure. No, but I mean this. This is where it's it's really unfortunate that we don't have Sarah around because she would have she would have a lot to say on this, um, like She'd localization and oh, yeah. and yeah. So, um, Sarah, if you if you hear this, sorry, we miss you. <laughs> we well, miss you. What I'm also going to say is there's another step that I've been doing research on, which I have to be careful because I mean some of this is in my thesis anyway. So I, I specifically studied interpreting and I studied it in churches, but it seems to apply everywhere. There's a big difference between interpreting because we need it, but we wish we didn't, and integrating interpreting into your organization so that you get the best out of it. Yes. yes. So I'm currently working on a, a working on a paper with a co-author where we had I can't even talk about that, but I'm currently working on a paper where that became very clear that you can have kind of I call it incidental interpreting. You could call it like token multilingualism, where it's like, you know, the equivalent of you go to buildings and the word welcome is in six languages, but no one in the building speaks any other language but English. <laughs> That's so okay, true. How multilingual though. we are, we, we have welcome in 18 languages and the people in the room don't actually know what any of them are. Um, but That's also you, you can have, and I've been in meetings where true. <laughs> the, the interpreting is provided because they need it, but they want you to sit in your booth, don't make any trouble, and for goodness sake, don't talk to anyone. Just stay there. Just say what the, oh, oh, you, you get the just say what the speaker said mentality. Yeah. And we have the booth, so we might as well use them, you know. Yeah. You, the flip side of that is, I mean, the just say what the speaker said is, you know, we, we need you, but you're expensive kind of thing. The flip side of that mentality is when you get, and I've had it a few times in my career where people realize, hold on, not the interpreters aren't just saying what the speaker said, they're doing something that makes this thing work. When we're the interpreters who make stuff work, th we're the interpreters that, you know, they're not going to be interested in machine translation or machine interpreting or that gunk because we make things work and I've had one CEO say we couldn't have done it without you and it was actually when I did something that some interpreters wouldn't like but the problem is and this is actually connected to the English as a lingua franca thing uh, Ebru Derricker and others have has shown that historically interpreters have sold interpreting as we just say what the speaker says <laughs> So therefore, Whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> we're asking people to throw us in the booth and leave us there and just chuck us a croissant every so often. We historically <laughs> haven't sold interpreting as we're the people who come and make stuff work because that's not how we're used to speak. That has changed. Uh, Julia Pogram, people like that are beginning to change that. But still, if you, um, I've got an article out in the latest ITI bulletin, I was looking at agencies and I said, 
nine out of the 10 agencies whose website I studied, you could copy and paste the text from one agency to the other and you wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> yeah, very true. And it's all processes. It's all say what the speaker said, accuracy, blah, 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 blah. ISO, yeah. Quality yeah, ISO. Too. But to be fair, I think that can be applied to a lot of different industries because the same goes for, you know, like management presentations. If I took a management presentation from, you know, one automotive Synergy. company and, and sent the guy around, you know, just send them around Germany. It could be literally the exact same presentation in every single company and you wouldn't know the difference. So I think part of that is exactly what you were just saying, but part of it is also just people want something familiar. You know, if you're going on a website and you're a newbie, you've never looked for interpreting and you're comparing websites, you want to see like you want them to hit certain notes, you know, like you want to see the ISO, maybe I'm guessing nobody actually wants to see an ISO certification because who cares? But it's something that but you tick up the checklist. I exactly. Know what, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, because yeah, they have yeah. no idea. And so they're like, oh yeah, but they're all talking about neutrality. They're all talking about ISO. So this must be important. And if everybody mentions it, this must be good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure that a lot of this stuff, it makes no sense and it doesn't actually say anything. And, but it's just kind of giving... I don't know, people who, who haven't worked with interpreters before, it, it gives them a good feeling. Hopefully. I mean, Hopefully. On the other side, I deliberately talk on my website about the difference interpreting can make the businesses and the difference it has made with very, very slightly over-anonymized case studies. And I've had people at business events go, oh, I didn't know interpreters did X. And I'm like, that's kind of what we do. And so standing out by saying this is what interpreting does i think realistically with english as a world language automated, automated speech translation if we still are talking about you know how we don't make a difference how we just say what the speaker said mm. we might I'm as just well just give up <laughs> oh that word just but but i'm not gonna rant but the, this is my point is that if we are not convincing clients today that we make a difference mm -hmm. then we're not making a difference but I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, maybe that should be a whole episode about how we sell ourselves and stuff. Because I think everybody needs to have their own USP. I don't tell I myself like a whole that, podcast uh, is about that. <laughs> to yeah, that's very true. Yeah, to some extent, absolutely. But I think everybody has to have their own slant because my whole thing is like, I make it easy. You know, like for me, it, if, mm -hmm. you, if you book me, it's going to be easy. Like you're not going to have any troubles. It's going to be easy. I'm just going to be not necessarily fun, but I'm going to be fun and it's going to be easy for you. So that's like my whole selling point. And then your thing is that you make a difference and you can prove that way. And so I think everybody needs to kind of find their own spin on, on what we do and then sell it in that way. But if you just say, oh, we just say what the speaker says, I think that makes, that's just bad. Yeah. And I, I think generic marketing is just boring. Well, why even bother spending the time and money on that? Well, the, the, the question that we now have to answer, and I don't want to give too much away of my presentation, but the, the big question that we have to answer, and English as a lingua franca reminds us of this, is why bother? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure in the, in the European if Union... you're just the interpreter, then they might as well just do it in English, right? Yeah, yeah or, or just like my phone can do just the interpreter basic stuff, as long as you don't say anything too difficult or you're not Scottish. Um, <laughs> Alaban. <laughs> Sorry. To be fair, it's gotten better, but I, I did call up my web post a couple of months ago, my new web post a couple of months ago, and I had to spell out my website name letter for letter. This thing hates Scottish vowels. I was very close to just getting my wife saying, Helen, could you just like say this? Because <laughs> she, she's it? English. And I've told this, I mean, this is the world, is the different Englishies thing. I was on a phone call a couple of years ago and all I had to say on the phone was yes 
to this automated system. And it was, uh, do you agree to such and such? Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't catch that. Do you agree to such and such? Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah. So eventually I gave it to Helen, who has a completely different voice to me. She said yes, mm. and it was fine. I'm like, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> if you if you can't see, because there's an audio podcast, I was doing my frustration face there. Yeah. Mm, I, can, mm. I can confirm. <laughs> okay. And also the frustration uh, clause. For sure. That's right. Maybe we just wrap up with that. I kind of like that lighthearted uh, end to this somewhat heavy Let's talk. Let's put Elf back heavy. on the shelf. Yeah. Well, so we're putting the Elf back on the shelf. <laughs> Shout out to Cardin. We really encourage you to uh, re-listen, um, listen again to the episode we did, number 37. Uh, and maybe check out her new paper, which is quite interesting as well. And uh, yeah, maybe we can make 2021 the year where you let us know your opinions about the topics we discuss. You know, so you can send us an email to hello at troubleturps.com or you can um, contact us on social media, uh, ideally on Twitter. We're not on LinkedIn, I think. Well, individually, no. but not as a podcast. <laughs> but you, thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's still a thing. Huh? We, 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 uh, we're kind of still on Tumblr. You know where to find us. So do, do find us. Um, like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. And it's been fun. So we're just doing a, a short and sweet episode to ease us into this exciting new year. And It's been a lot. 2020 has been a lot. Okay. 2021 has already been a lot. It's just, you know. It's been let's a year. Let's just take it easy. Exactly. <laughs> we'll call it a, a day for today. Yes, because it's already 11, uh, 17. 11. 11. Oh, nice one, Alex. A callback. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, we miss you, Sarah. It's lovely to um, be you. back in the hot seat for this year and stay tuned for uh, a lot of good episodes, we think. Yes. And if you have any ideas, any people you want to hear on the show, get in touch. Let us know. Um, and again, if you can, if you can help us uh, work on that transcript thing, that will be much appreciated. But for tonight, we're signing off. Bye-bye. Bye. See you in the next one. Like and subscribe. I said bye and then I realized that I'm waving to people who are only going to be listening to this. <laughs>